Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, British journalist Ian Gill tells me the story of his Eurasian mother, Billy, who came from Shanghai to Hong Kong and would be interned as a civilian in Stanley Prison Camp. Among the hardships of internment, she would encounter a terrible tragedy, but a later friendship with a South China Morning Post journalist would result in the birth of Ian in October 1945. Forty years later, he would attempt to find his father. Later in the programme, David Bellis of history website Gwulo.com takes me on a tour of some of Hong Kong's former air raid shelters. But first, Ian Gill, who recently came to Hong Kong from his home in Manila for a reunion of families of those Stanley Camp internees, tells me about his mother, Billy, and his search for his father. So my mother was a Chinese, raised in Shanghai with a Eurasian family, uh, an English father who was an officer in the Maritime Customs Office, and a Chinese mother. And uh, she was lucky because she was sent to all the top English schools. She later worked for Reuters in Shanghai, and then she joined a, a Chinese literary magazine that was uh, run by Chinese intellectuals who'd been to Western universities. It was government finance. And when the Japanese attacked Shanghai in 1937, my mother was, in fact, working for the mayor of Shanghai, and she was also um, the broadcaster for, the, uh, for a Chinese government radio station. So when the Japanese took Shanghai, the staff were worried that they were on some kind of Japanese blacklist. So she joined her colleagues in fleeing Shanghai and coming to Hong Kong in 1937. And there the group were reassembled as a, as a Chinese government information office, mainly helping foreign journalists who were coming here and planning to go to China. And she married uh, an army officer called Paddy Gill in uh, January 1940, and they had a son called Brian. And then in March that year, Paddy was, uh, his regiment was transferred to Europe where he joined the uh, British Expeditionary Force. Now, my mother was here, and, um, of course, later on that year, in December, the Japanese attacked Hong Kong. So my mother and her son, Brian, uh, went into Stanley with uh, the first move in, in January 1942. Your mother, when she first goes into camp, um, she was aware that she was going in, so she was able to take belongings with her. So did she almost go in by choice? Yeah, she was one of those who was told to assemble at Murray Parade Ground. So she took a few things in, but not much. And actually, she took in her baby armour, who was looking after Brian. All the three of them were together in, uh, in Bungalow B for a few weeks until the Japanese had a roll call and asked the armour for her papers, and she didn't have any, of course. So she had to leave, much to the distress of everybody concerned. So, I mean, in terms of nutrition, what were the challenges of, of having a young child there? It was both an advantage and a disadvantage to have a, a young child in Stanley. Uh, the advantage was you had uh, someone to, to care for, to, 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 to occupy your time, someone to love. And that was important, to have a motivation to get up in Stanley. But the downside was, of course, that you had to look after the child in terms of nutrition, which was already very poor. Uh, it was heartbreaking, my mother used to tell me, to hear uh, Brian's uh, cries for hunger. Many times, of course, um, to give her a break, some friends would take Brian uh, off her hands for a while. And uh, in May 1944, 
a couple of friends of my mother took Brian down for uh, to the beach at Tweed Bay, which had been opened up for the internees. And um, the friends were chatting away, and they took their eye off the ball, so to speak. And when they turned around, um, Brian was lying face down in a shallow pool on the beach. And um, there was nothing to be done about it. My mother was at the bungalow, and uh, she remembers looking up and seeing uh, Stephen Balfour, who was a magistrate in Hong Kong. Stephen was white-faced, and he said, Billy, you have to come with me. She knew immediately something terrible had happened, but Stephen couldn't get the words out, so he just turned around, and uh, they both went on this nightmarish long trip to... Uh, it's quite a walk to Tweed Bay. My mother was praying that, you know, the worst hadn't happened. But anyway, she got to the beach and she saw the group of people and uh, one of them was holding Brian. And, of course, uh, she realized that he had gone. And uh, in a situation like that, where a woman loses the only person she had left in the world and her child at that, you know, I think my mother was absolutely devastated, almost... Uh, lost her mind for a while. Only a handful of uh, children died in Stanley, and this was the only drowning case. It had quite a big impact on the camp, and there was a lovely funeral procession with children dressed as angels made up of white sheets, and they were singing, you know, Heaven is the Prize. And the Japanese, who were good to children, they sent in a, a special small coffin for Brian. And after that, well, her friends rallied around my mother, and there was one man called George Giffen, he was a journalist on the South China Morning Post, who she'd known before the war, and he was a great comfort to my mother. And he wrote a poem to Brian, and he accompanied her on walks. He said that, you know, she kept fainting after the tragedy. And they became more than friends, and then uh, something else happened. Um, in camp, a lot of women, uh, through the lack of nutrition, had become what they called malnutrited. In other words, they had stopped menstruating. And that had happened to my mother as well. But in September 1944, uh, the Japanese allowed in a, a big batch of Red Cross parcels, and each internee got three. And as a result of this, the taps came on again. And uh, I was conceived around February 1945. They obviously found out about it a few months later, and it was a very happy event. My father was uh, delighted, and he wrote a poem to his uh, unborn baby. He scrounged around the camp for wood with the intention of making a cradle. So it was, um, it was a close relationship. But of course, in 1945, it was the closing months of the war. The atomic bombers fell, and liberation followed. And my father, being a newspaper man, was one of the first who left the camp with his colleagues to go and take the, uh, the newspaper back from the Japanese and get it started again. In an article in 2007, the late South China Morning Post writer Kevin Sinclair records how George Giffen and two other journalists set about getting the newspaper back on its feet 
at the end of the occupation in late August 1945. On August 30, 1945, the atmosphere in Hong Kong was tense and uncertain. Two weeks earlier, Emperor Hirohito had announced the surrender of his forces, but Hong Kong was still under Japanese military occupation. In the Wyndham Street offices of the South China Morning Post, the Japanese executives who had put out the English language occupation newspaper Hong Kong News refused to accept reality. Three post staff had bravely gone to the office, demanding space to put out the first edition of their newspaper since the surrender of British forces three years and eight months earlier. They were the editor, Australian Chinese Henry Ching, who had spent the desperate war years in the city, the general manager Benjamin Wiley, and journalist George Giffen, both recently released from internment at Stanley. Despite the refusal of the Japanese occupants to cooperate, Ching and Giffen set about preparing to publish. Ching was in the office, and Giffen went out into the streets to gauge the mood of the public. Then he came running back. The British fleet is coming in. Giffen grabbed a chair and a typewriter and pounded out the news while Ching edited it. Veteran employee Lam Yung Fai got the paper set in type and printed. Soon after, the first post-war edition of the Post was being handed out free on the streets. The issue was a humble single sheet printed on one side, 13 centimeters wide and 28 centimeters deep. Extra, it was headed. Fleet entering. The news was momentous. The British fleet was coming into the harbour, ending not only the grim occupation but also uncertainty about the immediate future. The city was seething with rumours about an approaching nationalist army advancing to liberate Hong Kong. There was also talk of an American fleet about to arrive, and worry among the survivors of the pre-war government that their U.S. allies might hand the city over to the Kuomintang. The next day, a single-sheet newspaper of normal format appeared under the joint masthead of the South China Morning Post and the Hong Kong Telegraph. On the back page, there was a small panel announcing that the paper had been printed and published by George Wood Giffen for the South China Morning Post. And he was extremely busy、uh, at this time. And at the same time, of course, he was evaluating what to do. Because、uh, he'd be, he was married for the war and had a, a daughter, and his wife and, and daughter had gone to Canada, and now he had、uh, my mother with, who was expecting me. So it was,、um, you know, a, a time of、uh, conflict for him. Can you tell me about the poem that he wrote to you? Yes, I, I'll just read you、um, a few lines. Dear unborn baby of my unwed wife. How shall I dedicate to you, unissued life, a father's blessing? How speak my joy, who know not whether you, as girl or boy, will enter on this world of sun and flowers, nor know the anxious, unnumbered hours that shall precede that great event, the birth of one more child to the old earth. So you're born post-war in 1945, after liberation. My father was downtown putting out the newspaper. My mother was waiting for him in Stanley. The days went by and no decision had been made, and so she had to board uh, this, uh, the ship, the Empress of Australia. And、uh, she did get a note from him before she left, saying that you know he was very sorry he hadn't been able to come and see her, but to keep him informed about the baby. So she went on the Empress of Australia because she was very depressed. We got to Manila Harbour. And the doctor had told her, you know, that the, the birth was going to have to be a cesarean, and that was going to be a problem on the Empress of Australia because the the facilities weren't really up to it. And just at that time, a、uh, converted New Zealand hospital ship, the Mount Monganui, 
came into harbor. So the doctor said, okay, that's the ship for you. And there was a great hubbub of uh, signaling between the ships, and then all my mother's friends lined the deck as she was uh, lowered into a, a smaller craft that had come over. And then, of course, they went across the harbor where she was hauled up into the New Zealand ship. And from that moment, uh, we were taken uh, very good care of. I mean, I was, of course, still unborn, but she was given enough vitamins to make sure I had ten fingers and ten toes toes afterwards. And the ship sailed down to New Zealand, and I was born in Lower Hutt Hospital on the 25th of October, 1945. Ian Gill and his mother, Billy, headed to England to stay with friends. After the war, she and her husband, Paddy Gill, divorced amicably. Billy Gill was then offered a job in Nanking. It was during a period of hyperinflation, so her salary became worthless. Luckily, says Ian, the United Nations had opened offices in Shanghai after the war. She then began a long career with the UN. After the Communist Revolution, she would leave and later join the UN in Geneva for the Disarmament Conference, where she was the assistant to the representative of the Secretary-General. When she retired in 1976, she was awarded the MBE. I asked Ian if his mother ever saw his father, George Giffen, again. My mother never saw my father again. They did keep in contact in the beginning because my father had always acknowledged me and she did have uh, an address for him after the war. But um, Did he return to Canada? Yes, he returned to Canada. I wasn't actually told about my father until I was about 17 years old. In those days, of course trying to find one's father was much, much more difficult. This was way before the internet. And then in 1975, my mother and I met in Hong Kong, and basically she was walking me through her life. Uh, we met lots of her friends from Shanghai in Hong Kong, and we went to Taiwan, where many of her colleagues from the nationalist government had gone after the war. And we also met uh, a journalist called Spencer Musa, and he'd been working with my mother in Shanghai, and he'd also worked in Hong Kong. For the first time, my mother told Spencer that my father was this journalist who had worked on the South China Morning Post. And Spencer looked at me, and he said, Wow, yes, he looks very like George. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. Many years later, I heard that he'd been friends with somebody who was now in Australia, and I wrote to that person... And actually that person came to Singapore, where I was then living, and we had a long chat. Strangely enough, he didn't know where my father was, but he wouldn't tell me. Uh, He didn't say, I know where your father is, but I found out later that he did. You see, in those days, people, I I guess they, out of good motivation, they were trying to protect one side or the other, because I do know that there were children who found their parents after the war and were rejected because their parents had moved on. I had the chance to go to Canada for the first time in uh, 1985. And I had known that my father had lived in a place called Denman Island immediately after the war. It's a tiny speck off Vancouver Island, and I'd never been able to find it on any map. I met a friend and I said to him, Have you ever heard of this place called Denman Island? And he said, well, yes. I actually live on the island next to it. I mean, it was an extraordinary coincidence because Canada's got thousands of tiny islands. So this chap went back and he went to this... There was only one grocery store on the island. 
and he gets the telephone directory, which is actually like a small booklet with a few dozen names, and he sees my father's name there. So my friend sent me a postcard with my dad's uh, phone number, and I called him immediately, and he was very warm and welcoming, and uh, I flew over to see him shortly thereafter. I stayed with him, and I met his wife, and I met uh, his two daughters. One had been born before the war, one after the war, and they were very welcoming. And uh, my older sister said, you know, what took you so long? You know, you're the son he's always wanted. So it was very heartening. And, of course, I was able to uh, talk to my father extensively about his life, including Stanley. And I saw my father regularly for the next 20 years until he died in 2006. How did you feel on that first meeting or the first time that you picked up the phone to him and heard, you, heard his voice? Well, it was very exciting talking to him the first time and to hear that he was very, uh, very much receptive about my coming over. When I met him, it was actually quite strangely low-key. It was a small plane, and I got out of the plane, and there he was on the tarmac. We didn't hug each other or anything. It was just that we sort of shook hands. But there was an immediate connection. And my sister, who wasn't there at the time, but said later that looking at me gave her goose pimples because I looked so like him. My thanks to journalist Ian Gill for sharing the story of his parents, Louise Mary Gill, known as Billy, and George Giffen. Continuing the Second World War theme, David Bellis of Gulo.com took me on a tour of a couple of the air raid tunnels that still exist in Hong Kong. There were around 20 tunnels originally. We headed down from Pockfulham Road to Hill Road and the entrance to a former air raid tunnel, which interestingly had colourful murals painted on it. Yes, we're just next to St Peter's School. So I think it's probably been done for the, for the kids here. So would it have been covered in concrete at the time? No, this has changed a lot, as you can imagine. There was a staircase here when they first built the, the tunnels, but the staircase was much narrower. So as they made the stairs wider, it's covered over about half of the entrance. That's why you can only see one side of it now. If we just walk up closer to it, there's a couple of features that show what it was, was like originally. We're just looking, let's look at the, the mural here. We've got kind of a swirly sun. Just up above it, on the inside, you can see a, an iron track. And if you look right at the top, you see a little iron wheel up there. And that would be where a cable ran from the door up over the wheel and down. And then again, if we look on the outside, there's a concrete block in a sort of a channel on the right. And that was the, the counterweight. So they'd have a big metal frame with a, a mesh over it. And then you could lift it up and the, the counterweight would help pull it up as you, as you lift it. So here's one of the air raid shelters and uh, we'll move away a little bit from the construction sound behind us in a moment but uh, it's very interesting to see now would you have been able to stand up in them oh yes definitely they're, they're quite uh, roomy if you read the reports of people inside there people moving about uh, quite easily this tunnel had three different entrances so this is the the last one that we can see the other two would be behind the school it runs back into the hill from here but from here, you could walk in at this entrance and come out on Holland Road. It'd be about 500 metres away, so all the way through the tunnel. You'd have to climb down a shaft at one stage to get to the lower levels and then through the hills and out, so they were really quite extensive. Well, we've headed down the hill a little bit, away from the construction sound, and here we are at another air raid shelter. And when these air raid shelters were built in Hong Kong, what purpose was it for? So they were built around 1940-41 and they were built to provide a safe place for civilians. So you've got to think at that time 
the British experience was the Blitz in London. So that was sort of high up on the the minds of the British um, government. But also, not far away in Chongqing, Chongqing had been bombed by the Japanese for several years at this stage, regular bombing. And they'd dug a lot of tunnels into the hillsides as air raid shelters. So you, you get reports of uh, teams from Hong Kong going up to Chongqing to inspect what had happened there. And in some ways also learn from mistakes. They'd had a, a disaster up there where one of the entrances to a tunnel got blocked and several hundred, possibly even thousands, of, of civilians suffocated in that tunnel. So that was a big concern here. So when you look at the tunnels here, you'll find they typically have multiple exits and entries and also ventilation shafts. They were very worried about just if, if one place got blocked, you'd still have airflow. Um, so this network we're in front of now, this is the, the South Lane network. It's got about seven or eight portals that we'll see as we walk along. And it joins into the one up on Hill Road, but we're much lower down, so you'd have had to climb down one of those vertical ventilation shafts to get here. The one on Hill Road, a bit odd. They don't usually end up up the hill like that. Most of them are down here where, where the people live so that they could get in and out more easily. So how extensive was the network in Hong Kong? Or is, in fact, because it's still there? Well, a lot of it's still there. There are 20-something tunnels built, not just Hong Kong Island, but also Kowloon. Well, some of them have disappeared. They, they Obviously, they dug into hills. and In Hong Kong, we, we dig up hills and throw them in the harbour, and so we've lost some that way. A lot of other ones have been filled in just because they were dug in a hurry um, sometimes they were dug in fairly shallow ground or ground that wasn't very stable and there was problem with the, the ground subsiding so they've been backfilled so the ones around central for example were backfilled if you carry on from here to the the network on Belcher Street that's dug into very solid rock and so that's basically as it was when it was closed up after the war do you know how they built the tunnels I think then it was explosives You'd put the explosives in, blow up the next section and, and dig out the rubble. We don't have pictures of what happened inside, but there was a, a news photographer, Harrison Foreman. He was here around 4041. And so we've got several pictures of the excavation work underway with all the, the spoil being brought out on little trolleys. As you say, there were about 20 of them throughout Hong Kong Island and Kowloon. Uh, were there specific ones for government bods as opposed to the, the normal populace? I think they were they were mainly intended for civilian use. I've read somebody say there aren't many in Kowloon, and that's a clear sign that the British favoured the the island where most of the British residents lived. I think the explanation's a lot simpler. There just aren't that many hills in Kowloon. It's a, a big flat piece of land, whereas you know the ribbon of land along the north shore of Hong Kong just makes it very easy to to, to bore back into the hillside there. So, have you ever been in one of the tunnels? I've been. Uh, a very short distance into one. Totally legally, yes. <laughs> no, you have to be a, a confined spaces worker to get inside the tunnels. And to, <laughs> to show my anorakism, we, we actually went on a course, and I am now a certified confined spaces worker. Is that right? <laughs> it is. I was led on with false promises, though. This is the company that, that uh, was, was doing some maintenance on a tunnel and said, oh, you have to be one of these confined spaces workers to come inside. But funnily enough, we run a course. Why don't you come and pay us for a course and then you can come and take a look. Anyway, we took the course and never heard from them again. How often are the tunnels maintained? They have some sort of, um, of rotor. And who, who's it done by? Well, it's a government department that looks after them. A regular rotor where they'll, they'll go around, they'll clear out all the, the rubbish from inside. 
and then they'll just inspect it for the amount of water that's flowing in and out and if there's any subsidence, any cracks, that type of thing. Do you think that some of them actually, I mean, in the way that uh, you often provide talks with your uh, photos that you've discovered or bought, um, and um, do you feel that there would be, in terms of heritage in Hong Kong, a use for these tunnels uh, either for education or for um, people to explore? Wouldn't that be great? Yes. If you, if you could get to one of the ones which is in good solid rock, you know, you're very low risk of people being hurt or injured. Um, if you could lead groups for a walk through the tunnels, I'd be the first person to sign up, that's for sure. Well, now you've done your course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have my own hard hat and all. Um, you know, could you use them to, to actually house something like a, a museum or a permanent exhibition? They're not very attractive environments. They're very, very humid and very, very wet. So it would, it would need quite a bit of work. But I remember reading a few years back, I think it was the councillor for Central, and he was suggesting that the tunnels on Duddle Street be opened up and used just for some little market or something. You know, it would just be something very novel and different for Hong Kong. So if we manage, if we imagine going back particularly to the month uh, throughout 1941, you've got the Japanese military invasion on the 8th of December 1941 and then the surrender on the 25th of December. So before this is happening, there are a number of aerial attacks. There, There is some bombing going on. Yes, there's bombing going on, and once the Japanese were into Kowloon, it was very easy for them to shell with artillery as well. So the, the shelters were in, in good use. Now, you asked earlier, were the shelters reserved for government at all? One was, that was the one under Government House, and you can still see the entrances to that on Lower Albert Road. Um, and so one of our diarists for the wartime diaries, Barbara Anslow, she was stationed working in there, so she talks about the smell of the, the new pine wood they'd, they'd put the wood facilities in recently and complained how they, they hadn't got around to putting the loos in there yet so she had to dash across the road to the central government offices if she wanted to use the loo um, the other tunnels though they were for civilians so they were talked about in the newspapers of the days um, so this is from the the south china morning post a member of the public telling his experiences says i took shelter in two air raid tunnels in the course of wednesday's raids on the first occasion, I was caught in a bus which stopped near Arsenal Street, and together with hundreds of others, I made my way to one of the tunnels in the vicinity. On arrival, I found a great many people already there. ARP officials at the entrances shepherded the people into the tunnels with quiet efficiency, and there was not the slightest semblance of panic. People, young and old, made themselves comfortable on the benches, and with the electric lights burning brightly and no crowding, the half-hour I spent in the tunnel passed quickly. So, yes, they were very busy at the time as as people um, experienced more and more shelling and and bombing they made for the safety of the tunnels. Some of the accounts actually do uh, tell of civilians. There's one uh, uh, article that you've shown me from, again, the South China Morning Post of the time that is a reporter that gets caught in Central overnight. Um, and I'd have thought most reporters normally get caught in Wan Chai overnight, but um, and he um, without transport, so he's actually goes around and has a look at some of them, and he's saying that people seem to be there wasn't an air of apprehension. He describes it's it's actually people are fairly families are fairly contentedly sitting in there eating food and and coping. Yes, that's how the report goes. Now, you have to think that this is a a time when the newspapers are being used as propaganda so you do wonder how much of it is a sort of a you know keep calm don't panic type of message 
I've heard other reports say that the the smell in there was was terrible. You know, the, again, lack of toilet facilities and people not wanting to go outside. Um, so I'd be very interested if any listeners have got experiences, perhaps through their family, of what it was really like in there. I'd love to hear some some reports rather than just relying on the newspaper reports. So yes, if you've got any information pertaining to Hong Kong's air raid tunnels um, or any relatives who may have had experience in, is inside and you'd like to get in touch with David. David, can you just remind us what your email is? Yes, david at gulo.com, G-W-U-L-O.com. And have you got any info on the air raid tunnels up? Yes, we've got quite a bit about the, uh, the different tunnels around Hong Kong. You can find out where the locations are. And we've also got some research into a few of them to tell you what it was like inside. My thanks to David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website, gulo.com. Do take a look at all the interesting facts and photos he has on there. Also, prisoner of war diaries. Next week, we hear about the experiences of the people who were there, as David shares excerpts from those prisoner diaries. Thanks for listening and join me next week and next year on Hong Kong Heritage.